Welcome to the Let's Develop podcast, where we explore stories and tools for social change to transform ourselves and the world around us. My name is Arda Soyans, and my voice will go with you for this ride. By tuning in now, you'll learn from experts from fields as diverse as health, community organizing, business, performance, and more, who share their tactics and mind frames, successes, and defeats. Whether you've yet to begin your own social change efforts, or you're looking to refine them and grow your abilities, this podcast is designed to inspire you on your journey. So head on over to letsdeveloppodcast.com for detailed show notes and other info about this and other episodes. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to let us know how we're doing. Your feedback shapes our journey. And with that, let's dive in. Esben Wolstrup is a Danish psychologist, community builder, and play activist. He's co-founder and assistant director of the boarding school EPOS, E-P-O-S, in Denmark, where students ages 15 to 17 learn the mandatory state curriculum, but plot twist, through play, performance, and role-playing games called edularps. When he's not working to develop the community, staff, pedagogy, and leadership of this school, or consulting with other schools to help them do the same, he works with the Eastside Institute in New York to build an international movement of play activists through the festivals and communities called Performing the World and Play, Perform, Learn, Grow. Esben truly blows my mind and invites me to continuously explore alternative ways of thinking and doing. You'll notice that many times during the conversation, all I could do was laugh because of the imagination, curiosity, and playfulness of his approach to learning, development, and his view on life. Let's dive right in. Hi, Esben. Hi, Ark. It's good to be here. It's good to be talking with you. So you, you we had a little bit of a ch- a little bit of a chat offline, and you mentioned that you're excited and nervous to be having this conversation. Uh huh. What's what's that? What's that mix of excite excitement and nervousness? Um, I'm excited to be like speaking to you. Um, I've enjoyed our conversations with Patton, and kind of the conversations that can you know go unbound and uh, and discover new territory. So that's that's part of what is exciting to me. I think part of the nervousness is kind of wanting to both like the tension of both being present in our conversation and going with whatever we create and at the same time really wanting to share some of the work I'm doing in a way that can be helpful for people. Um, there's a bit of like the the how. Um, yeah, that's making me nervous. And it's, you know, I've, I've think I've come to live, I think in what Andreas calls the liminal space of like in a trapeze artist, like jumping from one trapeze to the next. Uh, pretty much every day when I show up for work, I'm like, there are so many things happening that I will have to create my response to, like where I can't just rely on what I normally do. Um, so I think nervousness and excitement has kind of become where I live. Very what, sorry? I think the the nervousness and excitement has become where I live. Oh, where you live. Okay. Every day. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it feels familiar. Cool. Cool. Okay, Esben. Well, thank you for sharing that, um, where you're at right now in in this conversation. And you mentioned that there are some things that you want to share about your work what's your what's your hope in our conversation today what's your hope for the audience that hears this Hmm. um well part part of what i'm really sort of interested in and excited and frustrated about is kind of the current state of our school systems and the impact that's having on our young people and i think my hope is that in our conversation that we'll be able to um, share, create, offer some some inspiration or some discoveries or some questions that can kind of like encourage people to go out and experiment and then look for ways that you can creatively reorganize 
have like the, the environments that we're creating for our youth. Yeah. I think there's there's something in the my hope for this conversation is you know both both to just like um be taken away with all like like go on a journey with different questions. But I think that the key part for me is kind of like for us to wonder about what's going on with the world and where where can we go from here. And so maybe to begin this wandering together, mm -hmm. what questions do you feel folks in working in schools should be asking themselves or could benefit from asking themselves more often? Hmm. I think one, and that might be a bit provocative for some, is um, how come, given that schools are supposedly designed to support children's learning, how is it that children are amazingly um, motivated, um, curious, um, engaged, and develop really quickly and in so many different arenas up until they come into school? And then even after just a few years in school, some kids and way too many start losing their interest in learning. And so I guess the question could be, how come kids learn so fast before they come to school and then lose their lust for learning in the very institution that supposedly is supporting them to learn? Does that make sense, that question? It, it, to me, it totally does. So that, to me, that's crazy. Like it's a, it's a crazy question that whenever you look at learning and literature of learning in schools, what they're looking at is kind of how to optimize schools and they you know, compare to other schools. But what they rarely do is kind of think about how kids learn before school and outside of school. And that developmental kind of playful way of learning um, that's so absent in our current school system. So, so how do uh, kids and I would say adults outside of, you know, educational institutions, uh, how do they learn outside of these settings? Um, and you mentioned the word playful, right? Yeah. How, how do they learn and where does play fit in? Well, I think to my understanding, what people do is they, they flirt the eyes with others. Um, so they grow up in families and have siblings and friends and um you know, people around them where they engage with them, talk to them, or if they can't talk yet, like my son is five months old, uh, try to make sounds or he'll, um, you know, make eye contact. So he'll engage with us and we'll engage with him um, and we'll relate to him as if he is a human being who's going to be capable of growing up to walk, to talk, to play, to draw. Um, and so there's something in when later on in the schools, like a lot of the kids I meet here at our school, but also in, in my former work as a school psychologist, that they kind of gave, gave up on that. And they were like, yeah, I suck at learning or I'm bad at math or, uh, you know, I tried it and it didn't work out for me. Um, and so there's all these judgments about what you can and can't do and what you're good at and what you're bad at. And this notion that you gotta know it in order to do it. And then it's really wonderful to both be hanging out with my kid or, or create environments where people can be as kind of, I wouldn't say courageous for someone like my son, because he's only five months old. So I think he's not yet self-conscious about that he, you know, that, oh, oh, this is new or this is different or that's not how I usually do things. Um, 
but I think we get we get to be that way when we get into schools. Like the there's a way in which all learning kind of gets divided into different subjects, into different classes, into different hours with different teachers doing different curriculum sets at different years of school. So everything gets very much divided and quite abstract and it's and taken out of its context and taken out of life. And so what does that what does that mean taken out of context and taken out of life? So, for instance, if you're cooking, you might have to measure stuff. But then suddenly it's like that that is suddenly uh, in school, you'll only do that when you're having math. And only when you're doing calculating in math. And so you might get a, a task where you have to, you know, calculate something um, where it says, you know, you're like you're cooking this and you need twice as much rice. What would that be? Um, but you're not, you know, that you're not actually cooking. So it's it's like abstracted out of context, and suddenly you sit with a um, a textbook, and you have to do different tasks and assignments um, in that particular um, classroom lesson. And then 45 minutes, 90 minutes later, you have to push all that away, and then you have to do something different, um, like physical education or um, physics or whatever and so whereas before we get into school things are like the way we well at least in Denmark and, and I guess it's becoming less and less this way and probably is a lot less so in, in the US and around the world uh, but traditionally in Denmark we were very supportive of kids free play and their own initiative in our institutions before kids got to school. Uh, so in like in pre-K and in uh, kindergarten, and like the, the kids would be sort of, you know, there would be creative activities and materials offered to them. And then they would go out and create things with that. And then you, as the pedagogue or teacher had to sort of figure out what it was that they wanted to do and then support them to do that, um, to support the kids initiative and their way of working together. Um, so it's, it's just a very different way of, to me, of learning. Whereas one is kind of focused on doing things with other and figuring it out along the way. And the other is kind of like, well, I need to acquire this knowledge in order to, or this skill in order to solve this task. Um, so one is kind of emergent relational in context, and the other is uh, taken out of um, a meaningful context and put into kind of the school where then the teacher has to motivate the students because they don't know why they should learn this. Um, so I think schools create a, a, like a million of problems, like so many problems for themselves in, in sort of organizing the school system in this way. Hmm. You mentioned um, kids free play. Mm -hmm. When you're training pedagogues or teachers, um, how does that how is that explained to to help empower students to you know work out of their own volition like i'm i'm trying to figure out if you're training a young teacher mm -hmm. how do you go about having that conversation um i've had that conversation with some teachers i don't usually like i i do consulting with schools uh, not so much these days because I'm so busy with our particular school. Uh, Which we'll get to. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so I haven't done teacher training per se. <laughs> but I think my, my experience has been that what it takes is to do some kind of playful activity with that teacher. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one way. Uh, I think another thing that I would like to, to also bring up and, and talk about is kind of, well, well, so 
given that we have this school system, you know, and that it's very pervasive, it's where kids spend years and years and years of their lives, thousands of hours. Um, so given that that's so pervasive and given that it's so influential in kids' lives, well, how can we then improvise with that? Because it's there. <laughs> it's like, it's it, it doesn't make sense to just build up alternatives. So I think in, in coming back to your question of, well, how do you talk to teachers in training about free play? I think for me, it's also helping people relate to our current school system as a performance, as a, a number of games. There's the blame game, the grading game. Um, um, all the different subjects has their own language games that you can learn how to play. Um, mm. And so if you relate to it that way, I think it takes away both some of the pressure um, and some of the, this is the only way it can be. And, and then you discover that there are actually a lot of things that you can engage with, that you can play with within the current system. So I think for me, the, the free play with for a, uh, working with the teacher would be helping them to relate to schools as something we've created quite recently, actually, and that we came up with and that, uh, you know, learning environments um, are something we create every day. So they can also be recreated every day. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, and I don't know what, if you kind of, yeah, so that's what comes up for me when you ask that question. It could be that you're actually asking for something different. You know, it, it happens to be that I wasn't, no. <laughs> it happens to be that that's, that's kind of what I wanted to share with you is what, what you responded with. Yeah. Um, so you, you have a school that you've mm -hmm. uh, co-founded in yeah. 2015. Yeah, yeah? three years. I don't want to butcher the name. What's it called? APOS. I like the Greek word for story, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the name that you provided me, it's after um, Scotland, and that's in Dutch, right? In Danish. I, in Danish. Yeah. Oh, God. I, I probably offended like a few million people just now. I'm sorry. Well, the great thing is that the Dutch of Holland or the Netherlands and, and the Danes of Denmark, we're quite used to it. So don't. Oh, is that it. so? It's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, <laughs> I think I've had it happen like 50 times in my life. So, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so in Danish, how, how do you pronounce it? Epos. Uh, no, the uh, after school. After school, epos. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. What, what inspired you to get it going? Um, where is it at now? And what's your role in this work? Yeah. Um, so what inspired, well, I've been wanting to create a school, like to create, be part of creating a school since I think I was 18 or something. And, and how old are you now? And now I'm 34. That's not <laughs> right. I'm 35. My girlfriend's 34 <laughs> and it's her birthday today. <laughs> so I got happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so it's you know it's been 16 years coming um and so what inspired that um well so what happened was that i was i was working as a school psychologist in in copenhagen and um and you know i was meeting a lot of children and youth who had been curious and creative when they started school but had kind of lost their confidence, the creativity, and kind of their sense of worth and hope that things could be different. Um, and and I, I kind of, my experience was that, you know, what, we couldn't help them because we're kind of trapped in a system um, of all these assumptions and politics of the school system, where even as a school psychologist, I, I just, for me, just saying hi to a kid um, I would have people respond to me, well, you know, if you said hi to the kid, then it's because with your kind of, with your precious 
time as a school psychologist, if you choose to say hi to a kid, it must be because that kid needs to see a psychologist. And then that means we as teachers are not capable of handling that kid. And so for me, just to meet with a student to talk more about, you know, the issues they were facing, um, that just by itself, that kind of became stigmatizing um, of them and, and actually helped exclude them from the school. Um, so I was very frustrated with this whole way of how things were organized. And, and so I quit my job and I started a consulting firm instead. And when was this? This was back in, um, what, 2014, I think. No, 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's when I founded the company. Uh, the Institute for Performance and Development, um, and and I was kind of looking for a different way to do this. So I, I started consulting with different schools and did a project for the Ministry of Education. But again, it was kind of like you know coming in and out as a consultant. That's what you do. Like you know you visit a school and you stay there for a day or three hours or a meeting, and. And I really wanted to create something both that was more sustainable and where we were kind of a community of practice, where more people were doing this together. I wanted to have playmates. And um, and then a friend of mine called me and uh, I met him like 10 years earlier, uh, introduced by our like, then girlfriends. They introduced us to each other because we both kind of like role playing it seemed. And so, you know, I kept in touch with him. We spoke over the years. And then he called me up and he said, hey, Espen, I want to create a school based on play. And I like, I want you to be part of it. And at that time, I had just found my girlfriend and we'd just gotten together in Copenhagen and he was launching a school that was supposed to be in the other end of the country, like in rural Denmark. And so I talked to her and she thought it was probably not the best idea in the world for me to move to the other end of the country. And or and, and that. for reference, uh, how long is the uh, commute to the from Copenhagen to uh, the school? I, it's five hours, four to five hours. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes me wonder what you think of that commute. I, I think it's a pretty sizable commute. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that's a, that's a pretty good commute. I mean, it's we're kind of like, it just, you know, we're about to move in together and then, yeah. So, so it was kind of doing something different. So anyway, mm-hmm. I was very moved by that. I, uh, I got straight onto the, like, became part of the, the advisory board of kind of helping shape the school. And, and then um, as things kind of went a bit further, I realized that there was no way that I could let that go. Like I had to be part of creating that school. What about being part of this project made you feel that way? Um, well, a few different things. Like, you know, first of all, how, how often is somebody calling you and asking you, hey, um, do you want to be part of a project that you've wanted to be part of since you, you know, <laughs> since you were 18? And, right. yeah. and I think when those opportunities kind of come up in your life, it, it, seems, it seems like something to listen for. And, and go for mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so that and then also um, I wanted to have a bigger impact on the school system in, in Denmark and beyond and for that I needed to both have playmates and have a practice and so for me this was also an opportunity to create kind of a action research project or a lab if you will, of how far can we take playful learning in Denmark? Mm-hmm. You know, what what better way to understand and overcome some of the challenges facing schools today than to create one? Mm. And so what's 
what's been very like to me very moving and wonderful about that is that it's that it's here <laughs> and that we're continuing to break new ground in how we organize the school how we organize the teaching and so it's so it doesn't like you know it's not limited to bringing more games into the classroom it's kind of well how do we reorganize the entire school to be more playful and performatory and more collaborative and more relational um yeah so it, it's kind of it's it's for me to have somebody who was that courageous about you know and visionary about what what he wanted to do and at the same time matthias the the matthias ganem who's the director of the school and and the kind of the the person who took the initiative and founded the school with the with a bunch of us um he's kind of you know a bit um he's been very good at both delegating a lot of responsibility to people around him and organizing the school so that everybody is responsible for several different things like everybody's juggling multiple roles and multiple responsibilities and then give space for people to kind of really take that on and shape the school. Um, so I think, you know, some some leaders, directors come in with like a firm hand and say, this is, you know, this is where we're going. We're not doing that or micromanage. And I think what he's been very good at is kind of giving people a vision and then inviting them into a culture. And then for us to kind of, we have a sense of what we're doing and we have a sense of where we want to go, but there's ample kind of room for us to create, recreate, reorganize, change the rules, change the way we've organized as teams, um, change the budget of the school in ways that I've never experienced before in, in my working with schools. And so what's different about this continuous sort of adapting, like the, the pace of it, the extent of it, like what's what's different about how you're doing this? Um, hmm. Compared to other schools is what you're asking? Yeah, compared to other experiences you've had. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think in some ways, I think I want to take us a few steps back to when you asked me, like, how did I come to do this and also, you know, what is it that I do? <laughs> What's the school like? Because I think it's a response to that. Because um, like at APOS is kind of, you know, it's it's a it's a boarding school, but it's a, a school where people usually just stay for one year. So it's it's kind of a particular type of school in Denmark. Um, it's semi-private but uh, mostly state funded and the, the kids kind of the state pays everything that's the school bit of the school <laughs> and then the, mm -hmm. the kids parents pay for the boarding part of the school if you will okay um okay. Uh, but on a huge sliding scale so so like we have kids where their parents are on you know um on benefits or um you know where where they are unemployed and and still are able to have their kids here at the school and and so the kids come here and they move in and they have a year here and we kind of take them to their final exams of kind of the, the final compulsory exam, exams of the danish school system and and so we have to teach them the mandatory state curriculum um so it's, it's clear what subjects we need to teach them and what tests they need to take at the end. And it's their final exam, so it, a lot is at stake for them. Uh, so, so Esben, yeah. uh, just for context, what, what are the grades or ages you're working with? Um, the ages are 15 to 17, sometimes 18. And the grades, is, is it's a challenge responding to that because we have a different school system than... Okay. Um, but it could be something like grades eight, nine, and ten. Uh, 
Okay. But I'm, I'm not sure it kind of translates that way. Would you like to briefly explain how, how your system works? Sure. Like a Coles notes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you have kindergarten until you're five or six, and then you get to school at around six years old. And then you're in school from grade uh, one to grade nine. And then at the end of grade nine, so that's when you're 15 or 16, that's when you have your final exams of compulsory schooling in Denmark. At the end of that, you can choose to either go to kind of technical um, education or to high school or to um, you know business school. And then once you've completed that for two or three years, then you can go on to the university and take a bachelor or a um, master degree. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so this is kind of like the, there's there's nine years in of compulsory schooling in Denmark. And this is kind of the, mm -hmm. the final years of that, that we have here at the school. Gotcha. Okay. That's helpful. Thank mm -hmm. you. And so, so I think what's, what's important in, in, or why I wanted to share that with you is that, um, so in a sense, it's like, for me, that's, those are some wonderful conditions to play around with how we do school because we get new students every year. So we can change the culture, we can change the rules, the regulations, you know, whereas if you were in a regular public school, you would have the same students for like nine or 10 years. And it's much harder to kind of change that culture. Um, so we, we can adapt that way. We also, we get tested on the exams every year. So we can try out things and then we get feedback from how the kids are doing at the exams. And also it's a boarding school. So the kids actually move in here, which means that we, it's not like we, you know, usually if you're working with school development, you have the challenge of the kids being in the same context with their parents, with their friends, with their, you know, sports clubs and whatever. So there's a lot of things that are holding them in, like keeping them in line with how they usually perform themselves. Whereas here we kind of, we invite them into this home that we create together. So many of them experience that they can be more of who they are and that they can be more versions of themselves here at the school. And I don't think we would be able to do that just within a year if the kids didn't live at the school. Does that, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so those three things like, you know, both having, it's kind of like the difference between going to a training where you come home every night and to actually stay there and stay overnight with people because you end up having these conversations in the breaks and in the evening and uh, talking together in your room and all that that you wouldn't have if you only came there during the day kind of a camp experience except that it lasts for a full year <laughs> and that's kind of what we're aiming for and so 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 that's one one bit of the context and another is that what they do during the day is that they have a like they get up have breakfast they go to a morning assembly um kind of a lecture for all 70 students and then they have math or uh, physics or uh, literacy so a, a subject and then every day they have an hour of movement which might be Quidditch or um, could be a live Counter-Strike or um, sometimes we also have them do like every week they, they have to do cleaning as well, uh, once a week. And we organize that as a battle against chaos, complete with roles and costumes and missions. <laughs> so we, we try to relate to, you know, so that's kind of, before lunch, they have, you know, the morning assembly, a subject, and then I, either movement or a battle against chaos. And then in the afternoon on Mondays, we have electives. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, for two, every, like, so Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and the week after Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, those six afternoons are what we call a theme week. So, for two weeks at the time, we invite the kids into 
a performance where they take on roles, take on characters. So they might be uh, they might be researched like noble academics from a steampunk Victorian parallel universe who have traveled to Epos via portal to study this weird world that we call Denmark. And as they're studying, like they're both studying this, but they're also performing as gentlemen and gentlewomen and, um, and kind of this noble academic um, to kind of invite them to a performance where they dare say a lot of things and make guesses. And, um, and so we want to give them high status in that. And then at the same time, they're also trying to, they, they get organized into four different families and each family are trying to get um, their uh, daughters wedded to the right uh, candidates from the other families. So there's all these intrigues going on and relational activity um, and there's role playing. Each of them have different characters and they're in costume and playing these steampunk characters. And then at the same time, they're doing math or they're doing uh, um, literacy, or they're doing uh, physics. And what we discover is that, you know, in, um, we, we, had, we organized what they had to do in the workshop for the Ministry of Mathematic um, to be like, you know, they were working together with materials, numbers, data, and like to come up with like interpretations of that and calculations in the hope that they could reopen the portal to go home. Um, so they had a meaning for why they were doing it. They were in character, which meant that it wasn't them who couldn't do things. It was a character who struggled with math. And hmm. what we discovered was that many of them actually really, you know, started talking more, sharing more of what they were discovering, uh, being much better at kind of asking each other for help, coming up with the solutions. And then afterwards, our math teacher told them that this is actually the format of how the math, like the oral test in math is in Denmark, is that you get some data and then you'll have to figure out ways of calculating, coming up with theories and sharing that, and you work as a team. So what they had just done is actually equivalent to what they should do in the math test. But what we did was put on, you know, have them put on costumes, characters, um, all have all these relationships. And the weird thing is that then they, many of them perform better academically. Interesting. So, you know, I think a lot of schools are dedicated to being, having kind of law, law and order in the classroom, mm. no distractions. And what we're discovering, I think here at the school is that when when we bring in more richness in, um, to the senses, to the emotions, to uh, the relationships, to the playfulness, that the kids are much more engaged and much more curious and have much more like meaning in why they want to take on solving something. And they go at it with effort because they need to to be able to get home via the portal um no no and in some ways it's not so surprising because part of what we know from research into play is that kids are able to do like be more persistent more uh patient more creative when they're playing together so they're you know they're able to perform ahead to older and that's also what we are seeing with our students that they're really kind of rediscovering how you could learn in a different way. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, that's been a lot of fun creating those games and, you know, figuring out what worked, what didn't work and, and what the students needed to be able to do this with us. And I, I, I want to get to see a little bit of the, uh, the black box that in which these, um, 
curricula, I don't even know if it's pr- appropriate to call them that, are created. Like, how do you and, and Matthew Wright and others um, go about creating these ideas for how to play and learn with your students? Yeah. Like, what's that process like? Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing we did was to have, a, instead of a job interview with potential teachers for the school, we created a job interview weekend. So they had to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And to become a candidate for working at the school, you had to actually create a learning game and then send it in to us. <laughs> so, so when we started the school, we already had some ready that people had created beforehand. And then what we've done at the school is to kind of um, divide the, um, the pedagogical staff or the teachers into three different teams, each consisting of five members. And then those teams, uh, team A, B, and C, take turns in leading the theme weeks. So my team, for instance, would be leading theme weeks for two weeks. And then the other team would take over, and then the third team. And that gives us, you know, we're, we're doing the theme week for two weeks, and then we have four weeks to come up with a new game or to take one of the games that we've created before and then um kind of uh, adapted to the new uh students and adapted to the new teachers who might have been hired since last time and so the the way we come up with the games are kind of like you start with a um either a narrative um you know it could, it could be uh, narratives from uh popular culture could be what well, a classic is Lord of the Rings or Call of Cthulhu, kind of the whole horror mythos, or it could be um, the story of kind of the steampunk or Victorian England uh, or Robin Hood for that sake. You know, there's there's millions of stories and narratives to draw from. There's also things that actually happened. The Cubic Crisis, uh, the Manhattan Project, could be, you know, the, the whole kind of Cold War could be inspiration for organizing a game that explores that context, those situations, those relationships. Um, or and, and for Denmark, it was kind of, we had a war with Germany back in the 60s, like 1860s. That was very much about the border uh, between Denmark and Germany being moved up and down in the very area where the school is located. So it's also for us a way to to give the students a sense of the local history. So we've made a game about that. And then, you know, you're five students, like you're five teachers, you have 70 students, so you can divide them into four groups or five groups with a teacher in each. And then you can have them do different workshops that they rotate through. Um, so for instance, in uh, <laughs> Yeah, so what, what's a good way of sharing this? Like, so we're doing it Tuesday, Thursday, well, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And so you could have an introduction on the Tuesday and get the kids into roles and characters and, and for them to know what the game is about and how to play it. And then on Wednesday and Thursday and the next Tuesday, those are three days. So you could have them rotate through different workshops where they have an in-game role-playing experience, but where they'll be working on math one day and then working on literacy the other day or working on political science the third day. Um, all, all, within, all within the context of this theme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the idea to kind of have them stay in-game, as we say, or in-character. Uh, or within the magic circle, as some play theorists say, or within, um, you know, and, and like to sustain an alibi for them. And an alibi meaning if you've got a costume on, or if you have a different name, or if you're asked to play a different character, then you're, you suddenly have an alibi for doing things that you don't normally do. I love that expression to sustain an alibi. So, so that's that's one thing we work with. It's kind of like how do we give them alibis for being able to do things 
uh, they don't normally do or they don't think they can do. And then how do we then help them discover that they can continue to do that without the LOI? And and so I'm curious about that. Mm -hmm. um, there's almost like a a context-dependent um, blossoming that happens, mm -hmm. right? That's sustained by... Context-blossoming. Um, yeah. Chapter <laughs> title or something. <laughs> you like that? Um, uh, that's sustained by uh, play visionaries and and uh, uh, folks like yourself, right? How, what what I think about often is for people who don't have the incredible luxury—not luxury—that's not what I'm saying. I just think that it's incredibly. Um, uh, transformative potentially transformative for students to go to your school and i'm thinking back to my own life and i would have loved to have taken part but but i haven't and most people in the world won't mm -hmm. right so i'm thinking about um what are the experiential lessons that students learn th that the world around them can also benefit from learning. And how can we um, enable people who don't have the capacity to go out for a weekend, you know, mm -hmm. let's say they're working class, they don't have the money for courses or something, or, mm -hmm. um, uh, or even those that do, for example, in, in business, you know, high income, high, high, uh, high impact, high income, mm -hmm. um, go, go, right? Like how are people to internalize these ways of playing thinking and doing and i don't know if you've thought about that before but yeah 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 well i think um i want to go back to something we talked about at the beginning of like relating to schools as performance performances of people coming together and playing school together and they might you know make the exact same play every day and it might be a non-developmental play, but they're still co-creating it every day. And so some of what we, you know, we, we have a lot of kids who are gamers at the school and they're used to playing computer games. And what you do in a computer game is that you kind of, you go into the, like, if you're learning a new game, you're gonna fail and you're gonna, like in many games you die and then you respawn and then you do it again and then you die again and then you learn how to do it and then you play with others and then you figure out the cheat codes or you know but you kind of work at it not from the vantage point of i really have to succeed otherwise i'm a failure as a person but oh that's a new game i'm gonna try it out i want to like you know get a level and um i want to get some loot so some better equipment so i'm better equipped for the next level and I want to fight the boss. So for us, we've been trying to, you know, help the kids relate to the tests as games. That there are point systems, that are, there are time restrictions. Uh, there are kind of, you know, particular um, strategies for getting particular points. And mm. what you score in a test is your performance in that moment on that particular test. So that doesn't tell you how good you are at, you know, at math or at literacy or whatever. It tells you how good you are at that test in that particular moment. And, right. you know, you can train yourself to particular tests. And what happens usually is that some kids are really good at adapting to the different testing situations we put them in. I get, you know, not, not just here at the school, but across the board. And and they score higher grades, not because they are academically better at things, but because they're better at taking the tests. And so for me, I think it's so important to help us as, as teachers and um, kind of anybody involved in schools to see that that testing is a particular performance. The grading game is a particular performance, and it's 
it's a particular game that invites certain ways of behaving and performing in the classroom. So if you're doing grading with students, the best way to get a higher grade is to raise your hand and share everything you do know and then to hide everything you don't know. So essentially you're like, you're hiding what you're bad at and showing what you're good at. And neither of those two are helpful for learning. Um, so, so I think in a sense that like, for me, a takeaway is, well, what if you looked at what you're doing with the kids as, as you know, not just this is how things are, that's how we, that's how we do literacy. That's how we do math. But see, well, what would happen if you invited them to relate to the tests as games? What would happen if you invited them to relate to math as mathematicians? You know, people who are curious and wondering about systems and patterns and um, and have them perform it as mathematicians, including, I don't know, a tweed jacket or uh, glasses, or um, I don't know what, what a you know, stereotypical mathematician looks like, uh, but, but have them play at being mathematicians, researchers, um, you know, all these things that they are not, uh, but that we want them to perform as. Um, so, so I think there's something very um, you know very accessible for any teacher to do in, in any school regardless of how um, non-developmental or disciplined or structured it is um, is for you as a teacher to ask the kids you know um, ask them to help each other to ask for help, make it cool to ask for help, um, work with them to build a community of learners where you're invited to show what you don't know how to do, you know, mm. and, and to take risks. Uh, and I think, you know, Keith Johnstone, the, uh, the founder of our, of improv theater, uh, mm -hmm. He, his kind of main mantra is you got to get rid of the fear. And I think there is, you know, many, many classrooms are, you know, schools are kind of traditionally seen as places where you're not supposed to be emotional. You're not supposed to be happy and you're not supposed to be like joyful or giggly and you're not supposed to be sad or angry. You're supposed to be kind of, you know, temperate and relaxed and, um, and, and, you know, uh, contain yourself. And, and I, I think what, what happens is that schools become very emotional places, but the emotions are loneliness and anxiety and um, fear that you might be called out. And even if you know the right answer to something, if you then say it, but the students then, you know, get angry with you for being such a smartass. There, you know, there are a million ways that you can fail as a student, regardless of whether you know the game or don't know the game. <laughs> um, and so I think we really do need to get rid of that fear and of that anxiety and of that loneliness. And I think the way to do that is to build community in the classroom. Oh, what does yeah. that what does that mean to build community in the classroom? Well, I, I think in, in very small ways it means to have a real relationship with the students. Like get to know their names. Um, notice if you know if anything changes and how they're relating or if they're saying things differently and like show them that you see them. Uh, I think it means asking the kids for help in, or at least kind of relating to them as co-creators of the classroom. 
and of the learning. So that one way is, is you know, there's the whole cooperative learning that have, you know, a lot of limitations and a lot of problems, but is also a system for engaging more students to collaborate with each other. Um, there, there's uh, like tons of resources out there um, in terms of um, having the kids work together to, you know, work to get together in groups and work together as a whole class. And I think for me, the, the key to building a community in the classroom is to like, not just control everything, but uh, I think you talked to Moans about this, but also really involve the kids. And so what do you think about this thing we, we read? And is it like, should we have picked another text or uh, what do you want to go with this? And, um, and so for me and, and my colleague Mass, what we discovered in our literacy um, classes is that we, if we do a game in the beginning of every lesson, it helps lower the anxiety. Um, it changes how the kids come into the classroom. They now go right to their seats and look up, not because we kind of have disciplined them to do that, but because they want us to get started because they're excited about playing the game. Hmm. And we do improv activities where we sort of mix subject matter and games so that we can play with the stuff that we're learning. And I think that kind of playful nature and, and that comes down to also, you know, uh, smiling at the kids, um, saying hi to them, talking to them, being curious about who they are, where they're coming from, what they're interested in, what, what excites them, what is their favorite book, or have they ever read a book? And would they be interested in trying out reading a book? Like, but really, um, you know, getting curious about who they are and, and if they want to create something with you. I think for me that that transforms the whole classroom in the sense that it, it goes from me having to teach them something. So, you know, the, often you hear that teachers don't have time to uh, go and see all the students. And you, if you divide the minutes of a classroom lesson by the number of students in the classroom, there are very few minutes for each student. Mm -hmm. Well, what about if you were 25 people working together to create learning, then suddenly it would be 25 people, you know, not just one person having to teach something, but 25 people engage in learning it together. Yeah. And so I think it's it's really, like, I think students are the, the kind of most underappreciated and underutilized resource of education. It's crazy how many kids there are in education and how little room we give them to give what they can do. And it's amazing, you know, their imagination, their creativity, their um, curiosity, the way they help can help each other and not necessarily academically, but also emotionally. So it might be that somebody gets really frustrated about it, you know, um, a task they don't know how to do, and they can say to them, "Yeah, I really hated that too. Like it's, you know, it's so hard for me to do." And suddenly the student feels better, and would like mm -hmm. is more likely to take on the next task because they're not alone in that. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I think kind of allowing yourself to be both more relational and more emotional with the kids, uh, more playful. Is, is some of the shortcuts to building community in the classroom. Hmm. So Esmond, thank you for painting this picture of the work that you do and sharing a little bit of the uh, inside of your mind and uh, knowing that your mind is continuously co-created with those around you. Yeah, including um, you. <laughs> hey, likewise, likewise. Um, uh, 
a few a few questions to finish off our conversation. One is it if there was to be something you'd want all of the world to know about your work, what would it be? How play connects us. Okay. Who are you becoming? I think I'm becoming more and more of a, a play revolutionary and, and an international organizer of play revolutionaries. Um, so, so the school for me is, is one place to create and recreate what, you know, how, how do we create environments for people to grow? How do we create schools for growth? As Lois one put it once. Yeah. And, and I think what I learned is that, um, I'm pretty good at building community. It's, it's something I've, I've always done, whether it was camps for psychology students or, um, you know, next week I'm bringing together 40 people at my parents' house for two days of um, making new connections, making new friendships. And, and so the, the, the bit about community building is something I've always done. And then what I'm learning is more and more how to organize that. Because I think, you know, and, and the, this podcast is a testament to that. There, there are people around the world like you and me who are seeing play performance, um, community building as a way forward in this crazy world we're living in. And, and a lot of us are like, well, some of us are getting to know each other and some are starting to collaborate a bit. And at the same time, we have a system of schools that mimic the system of the, you know, the health system of politics, of finances, you know, all these systems are kind of by this neoliberal um, capitalist way of organizing things have come to be more and more like each other and are more and more detrimental to the lives of our students and of the people and grown-ups and our, you know, our small kids as well. And so for me, I think often what people, you know, if, if you want to protest, you end up demonstrating or um, you create these uh, nonprofit organizations based on identity politics. So each of them have a different project. And I think more and more people are discovering how organized or how, how they have to work together in order to make an impact. And I think, you know, for me, coming to Performing the World and discovering that there were play revolutionaries out there, that there were performance activists, that there were um, people in so different, like, contexts uh, that I felt closer to than all of the psychologists I had been studying with in Aarhus, in Denmark. Um, and so I think for me, that's, that's some of who I'm becoming and kind of a an international organizer of that. Like last April, when we managed to gather 130 performance activists in Thessaloniki in Greece and, and really see if we could take, you know, this, this idea, this practice, this performance of, of bringing people from around the world together to build connections, to make some discoveries together, and to see if we can start having that all across the world. So, so I think that's kind of some of what I'm grappling with is kind of, well, how do I both, how, how do I, how could I both be a father of a five-month-old five son, an assistant director and um, teacher and school psychologist and founder of of this boarding school, and then at the same time be a leader in organizing people to 
keep pushing for better solutions, for better ways forward. Um, and I think that's that's part of who I'm becoming. It's kind of a, a leader in that movement and conflictedly so <laughs> because of all the both contradictions, but also the um, the challenges of of doing that with a small kid and the school and then what's left of the free time, finding ways to bring that into volunteer work of organizing and, and performing. I look forward to uh, exploring this journey with you. And lastly, where can people find you? Um, so to find me, I think you can, you know, you can find me on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Um, and I really urge people to go in and look at the Facebook page for this school. Uh, it's called facebook.com slash epos, but I think we'll have, probably have to type that for people to be able to yeah, spell it. We'll link it. Uh, yeah. But in there, there's a lot of small films, videos from our educational role-playing games and from the everyday life at the school. And I think visually that gives you an impression of just how radical and how playful some of what we're doing are. Um, so I really, yeah, so, so that would be another place. And just like, you know, look, look up um, the school's name on, on Facebook and YouTube, and you'll, you'll find a lot of examples, including some videos where we share why we do it the way we do it. Well, it's been a pleasure, husband. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your experiences. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Art. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode, folks. Head on over to letsdevelopodcast.com for detailed show notes to quench your thirst for knowledge. If you like what you heard, and even if you didn't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to let us know how we're doing. We're in it together. The Let's Develop podcast is co-created by Chris Raymond, executive producer and music maker, Emily Scollin, digital content mastermind, and yours truly, Artis Oyans, host and producer. Special thanks to Brittany Fraser and others for continuing to inspire us, teach us, and build us together. See you next time.